Welcome to the Final Draft Great Conversations podcast. Today's Great Conversation is with poet, writer and teacher Mariam Azam. Mariam is a member of Sweatshop, the Western Sydney Writers Collective. She was a recipient of the 2015 Westwards Emerging Writers Fellowship and today we're discussing her collection of poetry, The Hijab Files. I'm Andrew Popel and every week I explore books, writing and literary culture, broadcasting Final Draft from the studios of 2SER in Sydney. Great Conversations is a way to enlarge that discussion. It's a weekly podcast sharing the stories and issues that make our world tick, getting behind the scenes and talking to the creators of the books that you love. Mariam Azam's The Hijab Files emerged as a response to the paucity of representations of hijabi women in Australian literature. The collection engages with modern assumptions about women who wear the hijab and expands these limited, often racist imaginings to encompass the variety and fashion of the hijab. Alternately heartbreaking and humorous, the collection seeks to present the hijab and the Muslim faith as a thriving part of the culture of modern Australia and to defy simplified conceptions and stereotypes. I'm joined in the studio right now by Mariam Azam. Mariam is a member of Sweatshop, the Western Sydney Writers Collective, a group that we are big fans of here at Final Draft. She is the recipient of the Westwards Emerging Writers Fellowship, and her debut collection of poetry is The Hijab Files, and it was recently published by Giramondo. That is the collection that we're going to be discussing today, and I want to say welcome, Mariam. Welcome to Final Draft. Welcome to 2SER. Thank you, Andrew. It's, uh, it's exciting to, to discuss this collection, and off-air, I, I confess to you that a collection of poetry always presents this interesting challenge for an interviewer because any individual poem is a narrative unto itself. We could be here for hours, even for for a slim volume, but uh, let's let's dive deep, and I, I really am interested. Uh, look, help me encapsulate this. The Hijab Files, it's an exploration of the significance of the hijab, particularly within Australian and Sydney culture, but because there's no linear narrative that I can neatly encapsulate here, how can we best understand this this collection? Well, I suppose in a nutshell, the hijab files um, sort of captures the life and times of a young um, hijab-wearing Muslim Australian girl who um, who's grown up and lives in Western Sydney. And is this you or is this taking an overview? Um, it's definitely grounded in real life experience of um, my own experiences and those of my friends. So... Can we begin at the beginning? And I understand this grew out of an honours project that you were writing. The poetry collection grew from that. And you were seeking to correct an imbalance or a lack that you saw in literary projections of Muslim women and and those that wore the hijab? Yeah, absolutely. So um, in my studies of poetry, whenever I'd come across representations of Muslim women, they were always heavily orientalized, um, presented as the repressed woman, the silent woman, has no voice, can't speak for herself, um, doesn't make her own choices, has no agency. And as someone who is a Muslim woman, I just find such representations really frustrating and also very disempowering. And most of the time, these representations, if not all of the time, are coming from people who neither wear the hijab nor know what it's like to wear a hijab. So it was really important to me to have a more empowering representation of um, what it means to wear a hijab and, and be a hijab-wearing person. Yeah, who, who were these, these writers that were representing? Were they, were they men? Was it conditioned by history? Were they 
Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm curious because it's, it's something that you, when I read about this, you got me thinking, what representations do I understand through my reading of literature? Yeah, so I can give you a couple of examples. So um, one is by an Australian poet, Philip Salem. Uh, in one of his poems, uh, My Walls Are Ghosted, from his collection Feeding the Ghost, I'll just read a short excerpt from it. A woman's eyes shining black against the glow of skin between two wrapped horizons. Her dark eyes singing like two notes between the staves I'd never hear. Her imagery reduced, detached, to make her Muslim, this woman. There are those I cannot know, not in this life. Yeah, wow. I mean, that's really anatomizing. That's, that's basically breaking a person down to a few parts and... I mean, irony of ironies, he uses the word reduced. He's, he's not hiding this idea. Um, it strikes me in contrast, your, the language that you use, it's, it's embodied, it's visceral, it's, it's sensual. It's the very opposite of this stereotype of a hijabi woman who is depersonalized and removed. That's very much reflected in the poem you just read for us. Is this something that you wanted the reader to see in the world around them? The, these bigger, I, I, I'm, I'm, not doing very well with that breakdown, but this more personal view. Yeah, no, um, I definitely wanted to portray um, a Muslim character who had agency in um, what she did and what she chose and in, in the fact that wearing the hijab is not just about, you know, wearing a black piece of cloth and having your imagery reduced or detached. I mean, a lot of my collection focuses on um, the world of fashion when it comes to hijab and the fact that there are so many different styles to wearing the hijab, so many different fabrics and fashions and, you know, um, I mentioned the fact that YouTube tutorials, um, there's so many of them about how to style your hijab and things like that. So there's so much more to it than what seems to be represented in literature. And the fact that, you know, um, in this poem he says to make her Muslim really undermines her own agency because it's quite kind of indicating that she's not a self-empowered person, that it's the patriarchy imposing on her, you know, to wear the hijab and that kind of thing. So I guess it was really about self-representation and self-empowerment. It strikes me that something of the collection is a search for space as well. Space both, both physical and, and I got the impression, metaphorical to be a woman, to be Muslim, to be Australian in a world that, that has, I guess, this really a narrow idea of what being Australian means. Yeah, no, I, I definitely think so much of the collection is about um, my character's um, quest to find her place in the world, um, to find that balance between um, the modern technological society she's grown up in and she knows um, with the traditional values that are at the heart of her identity. And it's definitely a literal um, search for space as well. So there's so many poems where the character is just looking for a place to pray. Yeah. So, you know, she's praying in the um, next to the uh, um, restrooms at the Sydney Opera House, in the car park of the Parramatta Westfield. Um, so, yeah, it's a definite literal search for space as well. Yeah, that and that really struck me. I mean, there were these moments of beautiful connection in those poems it's one of the one of the very earliest which i have not noted which is which is really bad of me but it's it's praying at school sorry i i would have figured that out very quickly where having someone come to join really feels like it opens up 
the warmth of the experience. The moment uh, praying at the opera house, surrounded by friends, and I think you have a line about your heart swelling. Um, what is what does that mean, and how how I guess can a collection like this perhaps help someone who's not of the Muslim faith, who probably has very little connection outside of news news stories, uh, be a better be a better ally or have a better understanding. Um, well, I guess um, the idea that comes across in so many of those poems that where the character is praying out in public, she does have um, many times friends with her who are supporting her, so either shielding her from view because she's shy or embarrassed that, you know, she's got her forehead down and bum in the air while she's praying in public or, um, you know, making sure nobody says anything to her. It's very much about how um, community forms belonging and you know to feel a part of society you've just got to have people who are supporting you in whatever it is that you you want to do so um in all of these poems they're drawn from real life experiences and um these friends who've happened to um you know help me out by shielding me from view you know while praying in public because I was shy or something like that they weren't Muslims themselves but you know they were good friends good people you mentioned before patriarchal assumptions that are correct or incorrect that surround uh, Muslim identity and the way people might look at uh, a Muslim in the street. And the poem he wrote seems to, to hint at a problem of the male gaze and that the strictures male expectations can put on women. Can you tell me about that? Yeah, so... Um it was important to me to present an authentic representation of, you know, the life and times of a Muslim woman. Not all Muslim women, but I can't speak for all Muslim women, but just, just for myself. And, you know, um, the patriarchy affects all women, including Muslim women as well. And you do have some men out there who, you know, seem to think that they have some right to um, have a say over what women can and can't do and that sort of thing. So... Um, in the section Walla Bros, um, which kind of focuses on interactions with guys, um, the Walla Bro is actually um, a newish term for the Muslim fuckboy. So it sort of covers, you know, positive experiences with men, but also negative experiences with men. And, and he wrote was um, related to one time I, I had a male friend who seemed to think that he could tell me what I can and can't write. So, mm. I did not know that. Um, so a wallabro is basically a fuckboy. Okay. But, yeah. There you go. The that, Muslim version. The Muslim version. <laughs> <laughs> I now I now actually have to go and reread that entire section because I think that will give me a deeper understanding. Um, that's fantastic. No, thank you, <laughs> thank you, because that's I think that's something that. I have found in reading the hijab files that rereadings help to deepen my understanding, and and that's been really wonderful. Um, I'm jumping all over the place with my notes today because this is this is such an interesting uh, interesting conversation. I want to follow on though with those ideas around cultural uh, assumptions. In that hijabi from Strathfield Girls, I, I saw this intersection between stereotypes and expectations of faith and how they interact with cultural expectations, say the expectation of what your school might define about you. What was that experience for you and what were you wanting to convey through the poems? 
Look, it's it's so hard to encapsulate everything I was trying to convey because there's so much at play in every single interaction. But I think some of the things that were there, issues of class, you know, what school you go to kind of determines what sort of career path you're supposed to be on and, and which professions are better than other professions. So that was something, you know, with the fact that she says um, you go to Sydney Girls and all you want to be is a teacher. Um but also other issues like what role does wearing the hijab have in your future in the country in terms of employment and your success in your career and things like that. So in that poem, um, she is encouraged by her parents to stop wearing the hijab because they feel that, you know, with levels of discrimination in the country, she's going to find it difficult to get a job wearing the hijab. But because she was used to wearing the hijab and it was something really important to her and her identity, um, she felt literally naked not wearing the hijab and going out in public like that and she ended up putting it back on again. So it's it's a very interesting situation. There's no right or wrong way to, um, you know, right or wrong action in, in what to do, but you just sort of have to go with how you feel and, and yeah. It's another really personalising poem because... Whether uh, you're as a woman, you wear the hijab, or as a male, you feel that a path you want to go down is not something your mates will approve of. We've all had that experience of someone expects you to be a certain way and that doesn't resonate with you. Another thing that really struck me about that poem, as it did in so many of the poems, is just the variety and the fashion and the couture of the hijab. Um, can you talk to me about, about irony, about humour, about subverting expectations? Um, it strikes me a, a poem like A Brief Guide to Hijab Fashion is this pitch-perfect parody of marketing jargon a, as well as a reflection of this versatility of the hijab. Yeah, so um, the amazing thing is that the world of um, Muslim fashion, um, you know, hijab fashion, it's, it's a billion-dollar industry worldwide. Um, there are tons of brands out there, tons of hijab styles. Um, honestly, you could search up um, hijab tutorial on YouTube and there will be tons of videos of different styles. Styles for work, styles for school, styles for parties, styles without pins, you know, um, loose around the neck styles. There's so many different styles. And I feel like when the hijab gets represented in literature, it's very much the one, it's a, um, it's a black hijab, it's the simple around the face hijab. There's no um, beauty to it, fashion to it. And this is a really big part of wearing the hijab. And um, I really wanted to capture that Wearing hijab is just like any other piece of fashion. It has style. Um, people have different tastes when it comes to it. So, yeah. It sounds like there's a whole language to it. I mean, in the same way as a man with a beard, if I wear a check shirt, people are going to be like, did you get lost, mate? Do you want to get back to Newtown? Uh, people are going to read the way you're wearing your hijab, but what hijab you're wearing on a given day. Well, that's so true. I mean, I was at Bankstown Shopping Centre once and I, I walked past... Um, uh, this sales attendant at a store who was wearing hijab and she asked me if I was from Sydney and I said yes and she goes oh I thought you uh, I've never seen anyone wear this kind of style of hijab in Sydney so she thought I was somewhere else I said no I, I learned this style from YouTube <laughs> <laughs> do you are there is the potential for faux pas there like you'll turn up at a party and so it, it you know 
we we have the stereotypes of like a black tie or casual. Is there a way to faux pas in that way? Look, I think the faux pas could be that the style or colour of your hijab doesn't go with the rest of your outfit. But in terms of, you know, um, the actual style of it, I mean, I suppose for formal occasions, you wear a silk or a satin or a glittery scarf. Casual occasions, it's cotton. So you could faux pas that way. You turn up to a black tie event in a cotton scarf. Mm. There you go. That is... You wouldn't, oh, yeah, I wouldn't be able to recognise the fabric. I'm not that au fait yet. Um, I want to talk about spirituality. The, the third section very much deals with that and the way that exists in our world. I hear in the collection notions around prayer and dress. They're a source of strength. They're a source of protection. But it's embodied in our world and our interactions with nature. And... And what can we learn? What what needs to be better understood about that? Because again, coming from coming from a perspective of ignorance, my my understanding even of Muslim friends doesn't really extend deeply into their faith. Yeah. So um, the third section, the piercing of this place, kind of um, maps the intersection between spirituality and the everyday or the mundane and. I think one of the things that's kind of um, may perhaps unique about being Muslim is the fact that when you're praying five times a day, um, I guess spirituality is is sort of always at the forefront. So, you know, I've heard, you know, it's said that, um, you know, people organize their day around their meal times, but Muslims organize their day around their prayer times. So um, it was very much about kind of exploring how um, many of the the more supernatural and spiritual elements of the religion sort of impact in, in daily life. So, for example, um, there's a poem where she's looking at her cat who's staring into the distance and she's imagining that he's seeing a jinn, which is a being made of fire who's part of an unseen world that we can't see, but that's all around us. So... I just thought that it would be quite interesting to explore and to tell stories about this which are not often seen in contemporary literature, but it's very much a part of, um, I guess, the, the worldview of being a Muslim and living um, as a Muslim. I feel like a lot of cat owners know what you're talking about there. And actually, I love that one because I was reading that and one of my cats was sitting on the table well, basically wanting me to put the book down so she could sit on the book. But it's it's very much something that, that resonated as I read that poem. Uh, Mariam, they are, they are the questions that I had for you, and I would love to invite you to read a selection from, from the collection, from the Hijab Files, please. Okay, I'd love to. So I'll read three poems. Um, I'll start with Fajr Inertia. Um, there's an epigraph that reads, Come to prayer... Come to success. Prayer is better than sleep. From the Fajr Adhan, the dawn call to prayer. I lie in the knowledge of my failure, the way I lie through my chance at success. Hip sunk into the mattress, blanket over my chin, staring at a yellow flower clock with a missing plastic cover that reads six minutes past seven, 25 minutes too late. The broken gas canister of sleep slowly clears from my head. I hide under the covers from the light invading my room, but I can't hide from the fact I'll have to live today outside of Allah's protection. Can I ask a little bit about what that 
what that means because when I read it, I felt as we've all probably felt the shame of sleeping through an alarm and knowing that that's going to mess up the rest of the day. But there's something much deeper than that there. Um, by missing the morning prayer, spiritually, you're not under Allah's protection. Have I understood that correctly? Yeah, that's right. Yes. So um, the very first prayer of the day is the pre-dawn prayer, mm-hmm. which you have to pray um, before the sun rises. So, um, you know, sunrise is at a particular time. So these days I think it's... Um, 7 a.m. in winter it's quite late so you have to pray that prayer before the sun rises and if you do pray that prayer on time then you are under God's protection for the day but if you miss the prayer then you miss out on being under God's protection for the day so there's definitely that guilt element and that you know sadness that you've missed out on it on a duty that you were supposed to do you know because you've slept in so something, something of the emotion of that poem is bereft. That poem is, is a, a very tragic person from that, the individual's point of view. Yeah, it's, it's mm. self-disappointment. Mm. Thank you. Yeah. <laughs> so the next poem I'll read is called The Hobbling Bogan. I was hot and tired in my brown uniform, the white pull-on scarf itchy around my face. I wanted to get home and pull it off, pull my scrunchie off, shake out my hair. There was a long tunnel to Blacktown Station, two flights of stairs and three minutes to make it to my bus. I ran, my heavy school bag banging on my back as I dodged people meandering in thongs. I almost slammed into a hobbling man in an untucked plaid shirt, hair unkempt, carrying a plastic bag and a hunch like Hosimoto. I muttered sorry, stepped aside, and kept going. I heard him shout, Go and hide behind your effing scarf, as if he was throwing rocks at my fleeing back. And while I was running, I wondered how I was supposed to hide behind a scarf that fits snugly around and not over my face. I ran so fast I managed to catch the 722 and flash my bus pass, out of breath but not so fast as to outrun his words because they caught up with me on the blue bus seat. I sat and trembled from the running and from the fumes of those words. I carried the stink of them home. Normal people don't say such things, said my father while my tears dripped onto the carpet. I hadn't even taken off my scarf yet. Yeah, that that poem when I read it the first time and then the second time really really kind of broke me because it you, so beautifully again we talked about the embodied visceral nature you you make the person the the antagonist real in not just their actions and their tears but in their in the itchiness the sweatiness and that's something that is removed by these casual comments that are thrown around by this man on the street who feels you know despite the fact that he might be um you know not doing as well in society he still has this position of power as a presumably it's not mentioned in the poem but presumably as a white male um he he can stand and and fling barbs Mm, definitely yeah yeah And um, the last poem I'll read is called Interstellar. I'm an old physicist, says Dr. Brand to me and my coffee in my gold class seat. I sip the overpriced brew which tastes like soap water while he admits, I'm not afraid of death, I'm afraid of time. 
Before me, a starry mist curls through the black void. The science professor has spoken like a true Muslim. To not fear passing away, but the passing of time's arrow as it shoots beyond an abyss filled with stars that shine like prayers. Verily, by time, man is in loss. I recite the verse in my head to the mournful music of the ship spinning out in space. The light from the screen flickers like faith. Thank you very much, Mariam. Thank you, Andrew. I am speaking with Mariam Azam. We are discussing the hijab files. It is her collection of poetry. It is out right now from Giramondo. I appreciate so much you coming into the studio. Thank you for having me. That's it for this great conversation with Mariam Azam. Mariam's poetry collection is the hijab files and it's out now through Giramondo. Great Conversations is recorded on Gadigal land of the Eora Nation at 2SER's Broadway Studios in Sydney, Australia. The show is produced and presented by Andrew Popel. If you're enjoying Great Conversations from Final Draft, just hit subscribe in iTunes or wherever you're listening to this podcast to discover more fantastic Australian writing, delivered straight to your phone every week. If you're enjoying the show, though, please rate us. Help others discover the world of Australian literature. It really helps for people to find these works. To keep up with the latest books, writing and literary culture, follow us on Twitter. Follow us on Facebook. Just look for at Final Draft 2SER. My name is Andrew Popel. I'll be back next week with more great conversations from Final Draft.